All right, good stuff happening at church right now, isn't there? Good morning. My name's Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free, and it's great to be with you today. I was out there after the first service in the prayer room with a number of people praying through their prayers and seeing some of the verses that people were writing up on those walls. And what a sweet family activity. I encourage you to do that after service as we implement that 24-7 prayer room that will be available to people both after services here on Sunday mornings and then also throughout the week. You can get a security code and go in there and pray over whatever needs they might have. Today we are in for a special treat as we hear from a guest speaker by the name of Dave Runyon. And I got to know Dave a number of years ago while when I was serving in the Denver Boulder area. And God, in my opinion, has really used Dave in a tremendous way through his book, The Art of Neighboring. And uh, basically well, what I think he's done through Dave is put the cookies on the lower shelf so the Christians can think about love in a really beautiful and simple and profound way. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit over these 10 weeks And the fruit of love is the one that ties all of the other ones together, doesn't it? The fruit of the the Spirit of love is the very first fruit of the Spirit. And it goes like this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and then all the rest, right? Here's the way it goes in Colossians 3.14. Take a look at this on the screen. If you've been memorizing verses through those little verse cards that we gave out a number of weeks ago, you might have seen this one. Colossians 3.14 says... Over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in unity, which ties all the rest, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, are tied together by the power of love. And today, we're going to be talking about that, again, in this simple, but I think very, very profound way, as it relates to making a difference in the very places that God has called us each and every day. So Dave has been used by God for uh, really churches across our country. He's based in Denver. Uh, beyond that, he's a, he's a friend, and he's just really, really easy to listen to. Uh, he's a joy to the church in America today, and we're so, so grateful to have him with us. Would you please give a big, warm, Carney E. Free welcome to Dave Runyon. Thank you, Adrian. Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you. I served as a pastor for 10 years in the Denver metro area, and something happened to me during that time that changed the trajectory of my life. A group of us um, in my part of the city, I was in Arvada, for those of you that are familiar with the Denver area, and a group of us began to come together, pastors and a priest began to come together and try to figure out what, what should we do in our city? Like if, like, if we were actually going to act like we're on the same team, what's the smartest thing that we could do to demonstrate the gospel? And we got really excited about what that could look like. And then we had this horrible moment where we realized we didn't know our community well enough to be able to answer that question. Like have you ever thought about that for Carney? If you're going to mobilize all the believers across this city and focus them on one or two things, what's the smartest thing that you could do? And so when we realized we didn't know the answer to that question, we started these little community conversations. We'd put all the pastors in a room. We'd invite in the police chief or the city manager. And a number of years ago, I was sitting in the room with our mayor and all these different pastors. And we said, hey, what's your dream for our city? And then number two, 
where do you feel stuck? If you could wave a magic wand and change something in our city, what would it be? And when we asked him that question, when we asked all the different leaders that question, we're hoping to be able to identify what it is that we should go after together. And so I was sitting in that room, and our mayor told us a little bit about his heart for the city and about his story, how he ended up there. And then he said, you know, here's the things that I would like to see different in our city. He had this piece of paper, and he had written them all down. He said, you know, I want to live in a city where there's no elderly shut-ins, where there's no single moms below the poverty line, where there's no financial debt. He had like 11 different things. Um, They were all, most of them were really good. One of them, he was like, hey, we need a better newspaper. We're like, yeah, this is the wrong room for that. Um, So he gets done, though. He puts this piece of paper away, and then very much in passing, he just says, you know, if you guys want to have the biggest impact on our city, you should start some kind of a neighboring movement. And then he was just going to go on, like, no, 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 go talk about that more. And he shared with us the majority of the issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just become a community of people who are great neighbors. And he described this program that they were doing for people who were isolated and elderly, and they were getting ready to raise all this money to start this program. And he described it to us. He said, or that person who's growing older and doesn't have family around could live in an apartment, live on a block where the people who live around him or her actually knew them and cared for them. And then he said this beautiful line. He said, what we're learning at the city level is that relationships always trump programs. Yeah, it's good. It's like kingdom stuff. Relationships always trump programs. Now, imagine you're me for a second. Imagine like you're a pastor. You make your living helping people orient their lives around this. And now imagine what it feels like when God uses your mayor to tell you that the smartest thing you can do for your city is the Bible. Not just the Bible, like the most important teaching, the great commandment. You guys remember it? Love God with everything you have, heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your as yourself. Can you imagine what that felt like to be in that room? You ever get like punched in the gut and think, oh, I kind of needed that? That's how it felt. It was like this horribly embarrassing, convicting, sacred moment when our mayor told us, hey, you guys should think about doing the Bible. It could really impact our city. And I'll never forget driving home that day. I'm driving back into my cul-de-sac, and there's like 100 thoughts going through my head. One of them was this. I had this thought as a pastor. Jesus is smart. (laughs) Right, you'd think I'd have that thought a lot, being in that kind of line of work. But I was like, oh my goodness, is it possible that when Jesus gets asked to boil the entire text down to one thing, is it possible that he's given us all a very simple strategic plan that if we did it, it would change the world overnight? That was my first thought. My second thought is I realized I wasn't actually doing it. I'm driving back into my cul-de-sac, and I'm thinking about all the things that I'm up to. I was serving on the boards of three different nonprofits. As a pastor, I was trying to help people figure out their marriages and their life with their kids. I was doing these outreach events where we would put a lot of time and energy hoping that people who didn't know God would show up to something cool that we were doing throughout the week. And, And I had filled my life up with so many different things that I didn't have much time at all to be intentional with people who were sleeping and living 30, 40, 50 feet away from me. And so I went in my house, and I told my wife, Lauren, I'm like, hey, you're not going to believe what happened at this meeting. My wife's been ahead of me, like in most things in life, including 
building relationships in our neighborhood. And she just looked at me and said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I didn't want to have a lot of accountability. And so I just kind of sheep it. I'm like, you know, I'm just going to like hang out in the front yard more <laughs> for like a year. I just made that last part up on the, on the run. And she's like, oh, okay. And I started to do that. I just started to spend a little bit more time in my front yard. And God used that one little practice to totally mess up my life. <laughs> and I don't want to go back. It's like, I think that's, I don't know what, if you've had kids, I don't know what that's like for you, but that's how I would describe it for me. It's really hard and really messy and really beautiful and sacred, and it's totally messed up my life, and I don't ever want to go back. And that's how I feel about being engaged with the people that God's put right around me. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. Let me tell you what happened to this pastor's group. So we had this meeting with the mayor. When our mayor said the neighboring thing, in the back of my mind, I was like, oh no, I've heard this before. I had been running around our city just bugging people with that magic wand question of what would you change? What would you do to mobilize all these believers? And our assistant city manager, Vicki Ryer, had told me before, she said, you know what you should do with all those people that show up to all those churches is next time it snows, have them shovel their neighbor's driveway. And when she told me that, years before this moment with the mayor, I remember thinking, no, like that's not it. Like I, I was dreaming about something really sexy that all the churches could do. Like it was gonna be like, I could see like a newspaper headline. It's like the church eradicates homelessness, you know, or something like that. And so when the mayor said, hey, this neighboring thing, I was like, oh no, Vicki has been trying to tell me this. And so we invite Vicki to come to the second meeting. Same group of pastors sitting in that room, and Vicki comes in and just starts talking to us about why literal neighboring matters. How in neighborhoods where people know the first names of their neighbors, the crime rate is 80% less. That when there's a natural disaster or a crisis, your neighbors are almost always your first responders because the systems get overwhelmed which a lot of you in this room would know because of recent events. That people live significantly longer when they're connected to their literal neighbors. And we're just listening to all of it going, oh my goodness, this is good, this is good. And then in the back of our minds, we're all thinking, and Jesus said we should do this. And then Vicki has this moment with a pastor who's sitting in the room, and she again says this in passing. She wasn't trying to be mean. She just looked at this guy after he asked a question and just said, hey, just so you know, from where we sit at the city level, we don't see a drastic, noticeable difference in the way Christians and non-Christians treat their actual neighbors. We, it, that's what the room felt like when she said it. And then we started to like argue with her about her perception. We were like, no, come on, that can't be. And we started, and then we stopped, and we realized, she's right. In our city, there isn't a drastic, noticeable difference in the way Christians and non-Christians treat their actual neighbors. Not in a way that the people who God has put in authority in our city can actually see it. And that started to really, like, bother me. I started to try to figure out, like, how do we reconcile if Jesus says, if you only do one thing, love God with everything you have, love your neighbors yourself, and the fact that in our cities— in our culture, in our country. By the way, I've shared Vicky's line with city leaders from over 500 different cities. I've never once had a city leader, you know, a police chief or a city manager come up and go, oh, Dave, guess what? In my city, the Christians are the best neighbors. It's not even close. That's never once happened. And, and so for me to try to reconcile, okay, how do I reconcile the most important teaching of the text with the fact that we as believers aren't differentiated in how we treat our actual neighbors? 
And I started to like try to figure that out and think about that. And I started to get like irritated and like almost angry. You ever like see something? I'm sure this has never happened to you. You ever see something on the news and you start to get mad? Okay, so I, that's, that was what I was experiencing. And then I started to ask a different question and it changed my mood. I started to ask this question. I wonder how you become a pastor who's not engaged in his own neighborhood. And when I started to ask that question, I went from being convicted and irritated, or I'm sorry, I went from being irritated and angry to pretty convicted and reflective. And I started to read through passages that I had read hundreds of times, that I had taught multiple sermons on, and they just started to take on a new light. And I want to look at one of those today with you. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke 10. You can pull it up on your Bible app, or we're just going to have it up on the screen too, if that's easier. I've come to believe and to realize that many of us have become inoculated to the great commandment. It's one of those things that we hear over and over and over again, but that it's easy to lose touch with the meaning. Dallas Willard says that familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. And that's what happened to me in the case of this idea of loving God with everything you have and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so I just want to invite you to read this text through a new lens and to just see if there's something new that we can take away from it here today. So Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. So this happens a couple times throughout the gospel. Somebody asks Jesus a question. He realizes something bigger is going on here, and he gets the person to answer their own question. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Just think about how big just that statement. Do this and you will live. This, this part right here, verse 29, it like came screaming off the page. You ever like read through the text and you see yourself in the story? That's what happened to me right here. It says this. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This guy comes with a really straightforward question. He gives the perfect answer to his own question. Jesus affirms him, and then it says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wanted to find a loophole. He wanted to get out of it. He didn't actually want to put this thing into practice, and so he looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, like neighbor, what does that really mean? His first thought is like, I wonder if I can define the word neighbor so that it most easily fits into what I'm already up to. Would you like to know how you can become a pastor who's not engaged in his own neighborhood? This guy gives you the template. All you have to do is just define the word neighbor so that it most easily fits into what you're already up to. Would you like to know how we become a group of people who aren't differentiated from non-believers in the way we treat our actual neighbors. You just got to do with it. He gives you the script right here. Just define that word neighbor so that it just kind of fits into what you're already doing or what's going to least inconvenience you. Now, what Jesus does in this story is incredible. He looks at this guy. He goes, oh, we're going to play the define the neighbor game. And he just blows up the definition of neighbor on this guy. He's assuming, though, that the guy is neighboring with the people of the same culture and custom. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan, by the way, is like AP graduate-level neighboring, okay? Now, how I read the story of the Good Samaritan for most of my life, is I just read through that story, I'm like, that's an incredible story. Oh my goodness, everybody is my neighbor. Everybody is my neighbor. 
That's actually not what the story of the Good Samaritan says. What the story of the Good Samaritan teaches us is that when you care for the person in front of you, no matter who it is, you're being a neighbor to that person. No matter who it is or where it is, you're being a neighbor to that person. That's different than everybody's your neighbor. See, when everybody's your neighbor, at least for me, nobody was. I read the story of the Good Samaritan. I did some little weird mental gymnastics move in there, and I just ended up with like this really powerful metaphoric love for my metaphoric neighbors. And metaphorically, I was just killing it. And in real life, I had figured out a way to get out of thinking that, like, when Jesus says, love your neighbor, that he actually meant my real neighbors, too. See, oftentimes when when we try to love everyone, we end up loving no one. At least that's, that's what happened in my case. And I have come to learn that there's great power in, like, not starting in graduate school or in the AP neighboring class, but actually going back to kindergarten and drawing a circle around the places that God has put us and then working out from there. And I want to be really clear about something. In Jesus' economy, clearly, clearly, the relationships that we have with people at work, the stuff that we do across the globe, the thing that's going on at the storehouse here at the church, the friendships, the relationships you have with the, the parents on your kids' sports team, All of that is loving your neighbor. I don't want to dismiss that. I don't want to devalue that in any way, shape, or form. Clearly, that falls under the category of loving your neighbor. But here's the deal. All of that doesn't somehow sprinkle magic fairy dust over our actual neighbors, and all of a sudden, Jesus isn't talking about them. And somehow, I allowed myself to drift into a framework, a mental framework where that was the case. And the more I've shared my story, I realize a lot of us have. And so again, what would it look like to just go back to kindergarten? What would it look like to just draw a circle and say, okay, God, here I am. Here's the people you've placed around me. I'm going to just start to take some small steps and see what you do. And so my friends and I, my buddy Jay, who wrote the book with me, had this little exercise, this little tic-tac-toe thing. We're going to do it right now in church because this was the key to everything that happened in my city. We we were able to stand in front of 20,000 people in our city and all of these different 20-plus churches and do this little exercise. And the fruit that came out of this was incredible. So we're going to do it. So if you have, like, your sermon notes, go ahead and just pull this out right here. On the back, there's a little blank space. And I'm going to have you just draw a tic-tac-toe board. Just draw something that looks like that. Okay, you don't have to draw the little houses. Just draw a tic-tac-toe board. And here's the exercise. This is going to be a test. Your house is in the middle. Okay, now, here's the great news. If you live in a ranch... If you live on a farm, if you have a, live in a condo, a townhouse, a single-family home, everyone here in this room has neighbors. And so I want you to just imagine you walk outside your front door. Imagine the eight closest units to you. I know that your neighborhood doesn't look like that perfectly, so this is just an exercise. So those eight things that are around there, though, I just want you to think about the eight most logical closest units to you. And now I just want you to take a second right now here in service to just write down the first names of the people that live in those eight units. Okay, just start writing right now. Just like as many as you can rattle off. And let's just do adults, okay? You don't have to do kids and dogs. Okay, it's cheating if you ask your spouse. So some of you are cheating right now in church. It's not, that's not great for you. When I first did this, I could only write down both adults' names in two of 
the eight boxes. And I had a really bad moment, just like what you're having right now, for some of you, where I realized I've met all these people. I've met them all. And by the way, don't write down like annoying lady, okay? Put like real, <laughs> real people's names, okay? Dude who drives the red car, no. Okay, if you don't have their name, just leave it blank for a second. How many of you, just show of hands, you can write down all the adults' names in all eight? Just raise your hand. That's good. That's actually amazing. By the way, you've been doing, that's real ministry. That's real ministry, okay? So, well, hey, use it, okay? She works for the post office, so that's good. It's also cheating. How many of you right now, if I called you up here, you can write down both adults, if there's two adults, in five or more of those boxes. Raise your hand up. Five or more. Get your hands up high. 25, 30% of the room. This is like a little refrigerator magnet that we're going to hand out to you on the way out the door today. We've given away over 360,000 of these magnets doing this little exercise that we're doing right now. I've never been in a room of Christians where more than half of the room can write down more than half of their neighbor's names. So what you think about that for a second. Here's why I think this matters. In order to love someone, it's helpful to know their first name. <laughs> right? I mean, I think we could all agree on that. Here's what happened to me. I had a napkin that was up on my fridge. And I had these two houses filled in. And my wife could have filled in more, by the way, but she's mean. And so she made me go and learn them all. Now, you can go online and do this. Don't do that. Do not do that. There is something powerful in leaning into mildly awkward moments with your neighbors, with people in general. Okay, there's something really powerful about leaning into those mildly awkward moments. And so for me, all this stuff had happened. The mayor, I've got this thing sitting on my fridge, and I walk out. It's like two days after all this stuff is converging. I walk out, I'm in my front yard, and I look across the street and over to the left, and there's this guy who's mowing his lawn, and he's one of my blank squares. And I just, it was fascinating. If, you, if you're going to do this, which I hope you do, you're going to have this moment in the next couple days. Okay? I thought to myself, all right, there he is. He's one of my blank squares. I'm going to go meet him. And then I had this, before I even took a step, I had this other thought of like, he's in the middle of mowing his lawn. That's going to be super weird. And then I had this second thought of like, I'll just make up something to do in my front yard. And then I'll get, and I'm like, nope, that's more weird than the first weird thing. <laughs> and then I actually had this thought. I thought to myself, I'm just going to walk back into my house. And I bet when I, and I stopped right there, I realized I'm doing it. I'm trying to get out of it. I remember like it was yesterday. I remember taking that first step and walking down my driveway and I'm walking up across the street and he's sitting there, he's mowing his lawn. And he starts looking at me like, what are you doing? I'm, this isn't an emergency. You're not running. Uh, and I walk up and he shuts off the lawnmower and I look at him. And I just say, hey, man. <laughs> and that was my name for him. I called him man all the time. One of my other neighbors was bro. I kept him totally separate. <laughs> Thought that was really big of me to do. And I look at him I'm like, Hey, man, this is super embarrassing. I know that I've met you three times. I know I've lived next to you for over two years. I forgot your name. And he was really kind. He goes, no big deal. I, I went to tell him, hey, I'm Dave. He said something horrible. He goes, I know. And then um, <laughs> and he just said, hey, it's Matt and Jan. And we talked for like 20 seconds, and I walked back in my house, and I did something incredibly important. 
I wrote it down. I wrote it down. And after about six weeks of some mildly awkward moments like that, I had this whole thing filled in, and God did something to me. Like, all of a sudden, these became like real people with real names. It wasn't just the guy with the blue truck who has the two kids that play football, okay? It was like, and, and I started to like think about them, and I started to pray for some of them, and I started to use their names when I talked to them. I, I started to say, hey, hey, Matt, like, did you see the end of that game? Like, can you believe we only beat Northwestern by three points? Okay. Or in my case, the Broncos are 0-4. Okay, we all, we have a lot of shared pain in this room right now, this, this fall. Um, and then it went from, hey, I've got this thing in my garage. Could you just help me move it like 30 feet? And then it went to, hey, like you guys are going to be watching the game. We're going to be watching the game. Let's just throw some stuff on the grill and watch it together. To, hey, like your son's car is back here all the time now. Did he move back in? And like, how's that going? To sitting across my dining room table and the four of us, while the kids are running around doing all kinds of crazy stuff, like just beginning to share the things that we love and to share parts of our stories with each other. Like this thing that I had been dreaming about that was going to happen at the church thing that I work at, and, and all, and that's not a bad thing, by the way, but this thing that I was just hoping for was like sitting right outside my front door and I was just too busy to engage it. And by the way, that's like a year and a half time span. These, are, these, are, like, these things don't happen overnight. They happen after no, numerous obedient steps down the line. And none of that happens if you don't learn their first name. Like, so much of momentum is just getting started. That's what I've come to learn. And I want to be really clear about something here today. Like, I'm we're not up here. Adrian didn't ask me to like get up here and, you know, challenge you to love your neighbors. That's like crazy Jesus stuff. What I'm here to do today is just ask you this. Would you just be willing to learn and retain and use their names? And by the way, it's a Trojan horse to like get you to do all kinds of other things. Like my biggest leadership lesson, my friends and I that started this little movement in this part of, of Denver, our biggest leadership lesson was this, my whole life people said, Dave, good leaders set the bar high. And that's probably true. If you have a small group of people, set the bar high. People will come close to it or they'll get over it and you'll be able to do all kinds of interesting things. I've learned this though. If you want to start a movement, the key isn't to set the bar high. The key is to set the bar so low that people can't crawl underneath it. <laughs> that's what we're doing here today, by the way. Okay? Now, some of your neighbors, you're going to realize, don't want to be your friend. They're really busy. They come home and they get their kids and they go do all kinds of activities and, and then they grab fast food on the way back home, and the garage door goes up, and the car goes in, and the garage door goes down, and then they detox from that, and then they wake up the next day and do it all over again. And then you're going to learn their name, and that's where it's going to end. Because you can just tell they actually don't have that much interest in connecting with you. I have a piece of advice for you. If you have neighbors like that, don't stalk them. It's a really bad idea. Okay? And by the way, I have a lot of grace for that, because I think that's how my neighbors experienced me for much of my adult life. But some of your neighbors, I'm going to tell you this, some of your neighbors are dying for something else. You know, I was part of churches for a long time, and I had small groups and mentors, and I made an assumption that most people have something like that in their life, and what I've come to learn is that that's not true. What most people have is the dysfunctional family of origin stuff that we all have, and the surfacey work things. 
most people, many people are dying to just have somebody go just a little bit below the surface. To have somebody just look at them and go like, hey, how'd you end up becoming an engineer or in construction or whatever it happens to be? Hey, like, what are, I don't know, we feel really stuck on parenting stuff right now. What would you do if you were back in our season of life? How come, like, your lawn looks so much better than my lawn? Like, these are like little things that when the people, when kingdom people begin to live like this, the kingdom starts to break out everywhere. But it starts by taking some small steps. It starts by just saying, all right, I'm just going to take that, that next small step. It starts by kind of confronting and going, wow, like, I'm just living at a pace in which I'm not, like, available or interruptible at all with the people that, that God has put right around me. There's another text that I want to share with you. It's, it's been foundational for me when it comes to neighboring. It's in Acts 17. Paul, it's one of the great sermons in the New Testament. Paul is talking to these people in Athens. And he's talking about the character of God. And what he says in Acts 17, he says, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. Let me tell you what this verse says. You don't live where you live for the reasons you think you do. It wasn't because you always wanted to have two acres. It wasn't because you always wanted to be in that school district. It's not because you can't live in the place that you really are supposed to live because you can't afford it. You live where you live because God has placed you there. And he's placed you there for a specific reason. There's something sacred about where you live. All throughout the Old and New Testament, there's this thick theology of place. And I think most of us have lost that. There's a lot of factors for that. But I, I think we would be served really well to kind of rediscover a theology of place and understand that, like, the place where we live, there's something sacred happening there. That's also true for the places that we work. If you let this sink in, it will change the way you drive in and out of your neighborhood. You'll start to realize there's something out, there's something bigger going on here. It's way easier to get in the car and to drive over here to the storehouse and to do the, be part of this incredible ministry and then be able to drive back out because when you drive out of here, for the most part, you're leaving it there. I think for a lot of my life, I avoided really being engaged in my neighborhood because I knew how messy it was going to be. And guess what? I was right. I live next to some, like, really crazy people. And by the way, they'd probably say the same thing about me if they were standing here. And, but hurling into yourself into relationships with the people who live around you, by the way, is like the antidote to living in the Christian bubble, which I needed in my life. Being on church staff, I had just drifted into a place where most of my significant relationships of depth were with people who thought about the world the same way that I did. I think this is one of like the most toxic things that's going on in our culture right now is that you, it's very easy to drift and to only be around people who think about the world the same way that you do. Literal neighboring is the antidote to this. If you're willing to start saying, you know what, I, I think there's a discipline in actually engaging the people that are around me. You're going to guarantee yourself that you're putting yourself in connection with people who don't view the world the same way that you do. And by the way, it's really clear for me throughout the Bible that that's God's plan. It should, like, it should make us pause and think that one of the things that Jesus does all the time is make the religious people uncomfortable because of who he's hanging out with. Right? 
This is a great way to do that. You start hanging out with your neighbors, Adrian's going to get worried about you, okay? And now I'm not telling you to go and put yourself in like, if you, if you have like an addiction or a struggle, don't put yourself in a place where you're going to stumble. I'm just saying, this is one of the best ways for us to live out the gospel. I think Jesus is smart. I think he's a genius. I think that like when he actually gives us the great commandment, there's something really potent and powerful about it. That if we're willing to do it, if we're willing to do it, we start to realize that the way that Jesus talks about living, it really is the best way to live. It really is the best way to live. And it gets really interesting when you start thinking about what does it look like? What, what could one church do if they just started to do this? One of the things that I love about this place is that your leadership bleeds this stuff. If this isn't just like a sermon series, they actually do it. And they've built structures into your church, the, the Sunday to every day. It's a brilliant tool that you can use to begin to take what we talk about here back out into your spheres of influence. So the, those love one cards, the, the storehouse, all these incredible opportunities and tools for you to be able to engage this kind of work on your own, I think is amazing. And so what, what they've asked me to do is to come here and to just ask you, would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to just say, all right, I'm going to put that thing on my fridge. And by the way, some of our people back in Denver, they started calling this the chart of shame. It's not, we don't want, it's, it, hopefully it's just like, no, this is just a tool, okay? It can be the shard of conviction, but the shard, it's, this isn't a shame deal, okay? Whatever, wherever you're at with your neighbors, I was just as bad. But what would it look like for this church? So there's about a thousand households who call this church home. Everyone in this room says, you know what, I'm going to walk out of here, and I'm going to take that thing, I'm going to put it in my fridge, and I'm going to start having some mildly awkward conversations, Everybody does that. That means 8,000 households get impacted. And let's just go low and say there's only three people in each of those households. That's 24,000 people can get impacted because of this one church. If you're willing to actually go and say, I'm going to take like that great commandment thing literally, and I'm going to put it into practice. That's exciting. That's like really, really powerful. A mutual friend of Adrian and I, uh, back in the Boulder area said this. He said, you know, in this life, we can only do a few things really, really well. I think it would be wise to make sure that one of them is the thing that Jesus said matters most. And I agree. Wouldn't we be wise to, to make sure that one of the things that we're doing well with is, is the thing that Jesus said matters most, is the great commandment? Loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbors. As you leave here today, as you go on your way, I want to encourage you to just, like, take some time. Take some time to, like, slow down and just go, okay, like, what, God, what do you want me to do? It may be for some of you that you have this whole thing filled in, and maybe after, like, a month or six weeks or eight weeks, for the rest of you, after you get this thing filled in, I would just encourage you to pray this dangerous prayer. And it goes like this. God, what's the next small step that you want me to take with one of my neighbors? And in fact, I'd like us just to end today by just being able to do that. We're just going to get quiet, take 20, 30 seconds, and just get still in front of God and just say, God, would you just give me a thought, a nudge, a person that'll just come into your mind that you live around and just like, what's the next small step with one of your neighbors? And so if you would just bow your head with me, we'll pray that prayer and then I'll wrap us up. So God, what's the next small step that you want me to take with one of my neighbors?
God, thanks for this incredible command that has the potential to do so much for us and for the people that live around us. Give us a passion and a desire to take the great commandment literally. Help us to make the time to build relationships with the people that you place around us. And God, give us courage to live the kinds of lives that you want us to live. In your name, amen.